Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Pastor Pat Milligan and his wife Tammy. Pastor Pat is former pastor of Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. And now here's Pastor Pat and Tammy. Well, good morning, church family. Happy Sabbath to everybody. Our message this morning is going to be focused on raising godly children in an ungodly world. Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we just pray you'll be with all of us, all of us fathers and mothers and grandparents, that you'll give us wisdom beyond our human understanding to know how to raise these young people for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to start out with a couple of scriptures, and then we're going to be focusing on principles found in the book Education under the title Discipline, the chapter Discipline on Education. So our first scripture is Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And then the second scripture that we're going to look at and focus on today is Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And I think all of us are claiming that promise. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so, the object of discipline is to train children for self-government that they may develop self-reliance and self-control. So, we all have homework assignments today. The young people listening, you listen as to how you can help cooperate with mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. And then mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, they will develop these principles that they will encourage you to follow. So the number one thing we would like to talk about There's about eight points here, and then we want to specifically target in on fathers. Remember the Savior's rule, do to others as you would want them to do to you, Luke 6, verse 31. So this should be the rule of all who understand the training of children and youth. They are the younger members of the Lord's family, heirs with us of the grace of life. Christ's rules should be sacredly observed toward the dullest, the youngest, the most blundering, and even toward the erring and rebellious. And I think some of us can identify with that, all right? And I think of one person in particular was Dan Collins. And some of you know Dan Collins. He was an evangelist, and he passed away about 10 years ago. But his mother was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, raised him in our schools, and he fit this description very well. He was blundering. 
and erring and rebellious. And you say, oh, man, you know, those are the last that will ever come around. Well, you know, many times it's those that will come around, you know, down the road. Are you with me? We have a tendency to kind of write them off. But man, and I guarantee you, my class of 76, if you were to ask any of them, do you think that Patrick would someday ever become a pastor? I tell you, they'd be on their back rolling, belly laughing, because I was the last person in my class that they would have said would have, could have ever become a pastor. So I know this is true. The least likely will be the ones that down the road will be the strongest. Never count them out. Amen? Amen. Amen. I think it's a challenge to us, too, because there are just some children I don't like. I mean, I meet them, and they're just disagreeable. They're not respectful. They just seem to be bent on just trying to be rebellious in every way. And there's nothing in my heart that feels loving toward them. And yet we have an admonition here that God, who left heaven for absolutely nothing attractive in me, and that is the whole premise on which I should in turn be kind and gentle to that child. I just want to set them straight. That's my human nature. But God is calling us to be kind and gentle and loving, especially to those kind of children. So that tells me that takes supernatural love. As we receive Christ, we receive his love for everyone. Amen. Second principle we want to bring out, again, it's from the book Education. Encourage confidence and strengthen the child's sense of honor. Children and youth are benefited by being trusted. Suspicion demoralizes, producing the very evils it seeks to prevent. Lead the youth to feel that they are trusted, and there are few who will not seek to prove themselves worthy of the trust. Now, let's put some meat on those bones. What does that really mean? Make that practical. What is that saying? Well, you know, our son growing up, I don't think that he ever had a propensity to steal things. But I'll never forget one of the things he looks back on with such pride and happiness is that when he was in the eighth grade, he was in a Baptist Christian school, and they put him in charge of all the student funds. And they told him, you know, Joel, you'll need to keep track of who turns in their money. And like if there was a game or something and people came in and paid, he was in charge of that. And he felt so proud of that. And he was careful down to the penny about making sure that he kept track of those funds. And I believe it was that the gentleman who said to him, Joel, I know I can trust you, and that's why I'm going to ask you to do this job. And he rose to that. And I think when we give confidence and we ask someone to do something, ask our young people to assist us or to do things, and we show confidence in them, they will rise to that. I think even in the Bible, we have many illustrations of that, where God calls us, I don't call you just my servants, which he could, but I call you my friends. And to imagine being a friend of God, it really helps me, instead of just groveling before him for my mistakes and my errors, I see that he honestly desires my friendship. And what kind of a friend am I to him? Am I grateful and appreciative and give him honor and praise? And so I believe that many times, 
And I've seen that also done when people have been trying to help people in the slums and in the project areas and help children, and they give them assignments and the responsibilities. And these children will often rise to that. I think in my case, you know, my dad left my mom and I when I was five, and we were struggling. And so moving to a small community and being able to play sports, in my case, really helped me because it taught me some discipline. And believe me, I needed some discipline. And I'll never forget, my coach was like my mentor. And every young man needs a male mentor. Is that true? That's right. And it would be good if it was his father, but sometimes it can't be. And so in this case, it was my coach. Now, the turning point with me was this. I knew I was going to be successful, and I think this was the turning point. I really played hard when I played ball. Any kind of ball, I play hard. And so in football, I was doing okay. And But one day we were practicing, and I tackled this guy, and it was a perfect tackle. And I mean, the coach, he went ballistic, you know, and he looked over at the other coach and he goes, who is that? Who is that kid right there? And he said, well, that's old Milligan, you know. And so he goes out there in front of everybody and he rips my helmet off of my head and he shakes me like this. That's what I want to see on Friday night. And he pats me on the bottom and, you know, now after that, how do you think I was going to play from then on? 110%. 110%. Absolutely. And in other words, he built up my confidence that I was his boy and that others needed to tackle like old Milligan, you know? And so I wanted to please my coach because he believed in me. Do you get this? Now, I didn't have a father figure, but he became like my mentor. Yeah, my encourager. So encourage confidence. So I called Coach Brigance about 20 years ago. I gave him a call. I said, Coach, I said, I just want you to know you were a real blessing in my life, and I really appreciated everything that you did. Well, Patrick, what are you doing now? I said, Coach, you won't believe it. (laughs) He said, try me. I said, I'm a pastor. And there was this long pause. (laughs) He said, no, you're right. He said, God is good. You know, we all need that, though, don't we? We all we need can that. also leave, live up to the negative. So if I always think that a, a child or even a friend or someone that I know is going to be a failure or not going to be successful, and I mm-hmm. say those things to them, often children will live up to yeah, that we're coming as well. To that. That's principle number eight. All right, number three, <laughs> request rather than command. Request rather than command. The one thus addressed has opportunity to prove himself Loyal to right principles, his obedience is the result of choice rather than compulsion. So let's put some some substance on that. Yeah, yeah. What is that saying? I, I honestly thought that that's something we could have done better as parents. I think I was raised in a home where my parents' word was law, and I think that's good. My mother believed you should have a few rules, but you should die by them, meaning you do not make rules that you don't stand behind. And she had seven children. She never told us twice to do something. She was walked quietly and kind of carried a big stick type thing. She always said, Tammy, and I knew I was to look at her. And then she would say, I need you to put the clothes in the washer in the dryer. And my part was to say, yes, mama. And then she knew she had my attention, 
We made eye contact. She was always very pleasant. She was never threatening. And then I said, yes, Mama, and that was it. Now, if I dilly-dallied and I didn't get it done and an hour later she found it wasn't done, there was a consequence. I probably had to fold more clothes that day than I would have had to otherwise, or there was a consequence. So I really appreciate that. I think what I would like to have done better as a mother is to say to my children, you know, sissy or brother, would you do such and such? And then have them say, yes, mother, and run and do it, and then me appreciate it, and allow them to make a choice. And I think that's what this is trying to say. It's saying, address a child in a way that gives them an opportunity. Request rather than command. Now, there are times we have to command. It's necessary. If if the child says, well, dad or mom, I don't feel like it, then you just say, well, you better start feeling like it. <laughs> or, or regardless of that, there are many things in life we have to do that we don't feel like, right? If we went by our feelings, we wouldn't get up and go to work on time. I mean, there's a whole list. Uh-huh. So it's an opportunity to teach a child that if we go by our feelings, we won't be successful in life. All right. We need to go by what Read we Read principle do. number four. Rules should be few. It's kind of what I said. Well thought out and enforced. Whatever is found impossible to change, the mind learns to recognize and adapt itself to. But the possibility of indulgence induces desire, hope, and uncertainty. And the results are restlessness, irritability, and insubordination. So I believe that adults and children alike need boundaries, healthy boundaries, in order to be safe. And, you know, we have many such boundaries and instruction in the spirit of prophecy in the Bible. Do this, and you will live long. Do this, and you will be happy. Do this, and you will be healthy. We have many such instructions. And so in order for our young people to obey God someday, they have to learn to obey us. And we need to teach them that When mother or daddy says, this is the way it's going to be, we can't give in later. That totally destroys a child's lack of trust and a child's lack of obedience. Because, well, mom may say that, but she probably doesn't mean it, or I can still get by with this. So few rules, but we need to make sure that they're enacted. I once, in my mind's eye, anyway, for sure, saw a billboard that shows a policeman with his hand on the head of a young man and putting him in the back of his car. And he's looking at us as the audience. And above it says, parents, you teach them now or I get them later. So it's really, really important. Or or parents, discipline them now or we'll discipline them later. Right. (laughs) So it's important that children learn to mind and that there's discipline, even though it's hard on our hearts to follow through sometimes, for their own good later on. So I'm really being selfish if I, as a mother, ask my child to do something and then I don't follow through because I'm teaching and ingraining in that child that they really don't have to obey the rules and it will come out to bite them later, so to speak. Principle number five, do not treat sin lightly. She says, terrible is sin's power over the wrongdoer. The greatest wrong done to a child or youth is to allow him to become fastened in the bondage of evil habit. So young people, when mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are saying, now, this is not healthy, this is not good, but but mom, but dad, I want to watch that movie. 
Well, I want to play that video game. Well, you know, but is the movie full of violence and, you know, cursing and swearing and all that? Well, all the things that break the law. Yeah, all the things that break the law of God. Well, if mom and dad say, no, you can't watch that. That's only for your own good. They're not just trying to strong arm you. They know that it will develop evil propensities in your brain and they don't want that to get developed and fastened in your mind. They're only trying to protect you, you see. So if we as parents see that our children are involved in something that's corrupt or evil. Now, years ago, we may have told you this story that we knew a young man and he got caught up in a video game called Dungeons and Dragons. Now, I know that they've got worse video games out there today, worse than Dungeons and Dragons, but that one was enough to take this young man out and he destroyed himself. So... If we know that our children are involved in something that's evil, you know, we've got to say in a loving way, got to put our arm around him and say, you know, is this helping your character to be more like God, more like Jesus? We have to ask that question. Amen. Number six, guard against fault finding and censure. Continual censure bewilders but does not reform. With many minds and often those of the finest susceptibility, an atmosphere of unsympathetic criticism is fatal to effort. And we're told this by the experts, that if you're going to have to speak negatively to somebody about something, you better have spoken three positives to that person before you speak the negative thing that you need to say. Are you with me? So often... The reason we don't hear the negative criticism is because there hasn't been the positive first. If my coach, my coach could have told me, and I would have listened to him, I think, maybe, because he had spoken positive things to me first, you see. In other words, I would have listened to Coach Brigance a lot quicker than I would have listened to somebody else. And so we need to remember that. If you're going to say something negative, be sure that there are three positives before that. Amen? And this doesn't mean necessarily right then. No. Okay, because at one point I had about 70 employees. Some of them I could provide coaching to and they were very receptive. Others, if I were in the same session that we met to tell them two or three positive things about them and then something I wanted to work on, that's all they would remember is the positive. (laughs) But this is talking about throughout the day, let's say as a parent or grandparent, are we positively recognizing the good things that our children or grandchildren are doing? And are we verbalizing those things? Are we appreciative to our spouses? Do I give my husband continual appreciation for all the things he does to take good care of me? Or do I only speak to him when it's something I want him to improve on or do different? So I think it's a really good rule of thumb for us to remember We just need to be saying more positive things to each other in general than the negative or than opportunities to improve. And and we can all probably agree with this, that we are all creatures of habit. So if you've been in the habit of speaking negatively rather than positively, that's a habit. Mm -hmm. Now, can we break that habit? Well, through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can break that habit. Amen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Amen. Amen. There's enough negative in all of us to fault find and nitpick. Every one of us, the more we get to know each other, we are aware of each other's weaknesses. 
and we're aware of each other's strengths. Let us focus on the positives. And if the Holy Spirit gives us opportunity to help coach each other on the negative, let us do it in a spirit of love. And then we will have developed that relationship where we're open to those kinds of opportunities to improve. Now, the reason why this is so important is because God is getting us ready for heaven. And the only thing that we take to heaven is our character, isn't it? So we're wanting to develop as close as possible a Christ-like character as possible. Amen. And what is character? Character is the sum of our thoughts and our feelings. Because our thoughts and feelings are then enacted in actions. Mm -hmm. So God is working on our minds, our thoughts and our feelings. And as those become more in line with heaven and with Jesus, then we will fit right into heaven. Number seven, frequent censure results in discouragement. If you are always criticizing me or telling me what I do wrong, I become discouraged. Mm. I would become discouraged. I can never be good enough. I can, right. I, yeah. I might as well give up. Yeah. If my parent is always haranguing me, if my parent is always on my case, mm-hmm. If my parent is always criticizing me and telling me what I do wrong, I will give up as a child and think, there's nothing I can do to please that person, so I'm not going to try anymore. So another really good reason for us to make sure we recognize the positive. Amen. Amen. And the last one is, do not make public the child's faults and mistakes. The teacher or parent should seek to avoid giving reproof or punishment in the presence of others. Now, why is that so important? Well, there's a beautiful scripture in Psalms where David says that the Lord helped prevent him from being embarrassed by his actions, that the Lord does not like to expose our sins to others. He tries very hard to keep us from embarrassment. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. And I think it's the same way about each other. It's very important that we're sensitive to each other and we try not to embarrass each other. Now, sometimes as a parent, I've been embarrassed by my child's behavior. So therefore, I have censured them in front of people for whose sake? My sake. Instead of saying, oh, honey, let's not do that or come with me. We need to have a little talk. But in a way that the child does not feel embarrassed. So I love that we are called as parents and grandparents to have the nature of God. God says what he means. He means what he says, and he follows through, right? But he's also kind and loving and patient and long-suffering and gentle. And so we need to be that with each other. He knew that Peter was in danger, Mm -hmm. you know, at the trial. And he had already told Peter, not Peter, you need to watch and pray, you know. Well, Peter said, I'm willing to fight for you. I'll die for you, you know, and and Jesus is saying, Peter, you need to be really praying. You don't realize what's about ready to happen here. Well, Peter was so confident, see. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the story, how that he started denying the Lord. You know, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. You know, he kept saying it. Finally, the rooster crowed, you know, and Mm -hmm. he realized what Jesus had said about Mm -hmm. the rooster crowing and him denying him. And then came the look. You know, the look of Jesus to Peter. And it wasn't a look of censure. It wasn't a look of censure. It just, it was it wasn't, a look. It wasn't a look of, I told you so. Yeah. 
It was a look that just broke Peter's heart because he saw the tears in Jesus' eyes. Like, Peter, I was hoping you'd really be praying because I kind of knew this might happen if you didn't really stay close, you know. He said it saw the love of Jesus for him at that moment. But see, he he was publicly embarrassed Mm -hmm. because he didn't listen to Jesus. Publicly, he felt like such a hypocrite because of what he had done. And he was, he was, and we've all been hypocritical. I mean, let's face it, we all have. And we can't just point fingers at Peter, you know? We all fall short of the glory of God, do we not? And there's two things, too, that I'd like to say. One is there is a wicked part of my heart that feels somehow happy when sometimes somebody gets caught or their real character comes out. Or people get to see, yep, that's, they really are a scoundrel. And I hate to confess that in front of you, but there is a wicked part in my heart that feels somewhat gloating and gratified when someone gets it. And that's so evil. I want to come to the place where Jesus so fills my heart with love that even someone who's unkind and unfair to me, if something happens bad to them, that I have compassion. And I believe that's a spiritual thing. And then one more thing. I walked into a room one time when we were getting ready to walk out on a stage in front of hundreds of people. And there were three women in the room and a man. And we were all going to be up on the platform to speak. And I noticed that the gentleman's pants were unzipped. And I looked at the women's faces and I could tell they all knew, but nobody knew what to do. Well, you know, we're getting ready to walk out there. And that is something I would hope someone would say something to me. But I didn't know him either. And it was uncomfortable. So I just took a deep breath and went over and grabbed his lapels and turned him around Mm -hmm. like this. And I'm sure he wondered what in the world I was doing. Turned him around with his back to the other women. And I said, your pants are unzipped. And he said, what do I do? I said, I'll keep my eyes on your eyes and you zip them up. And he said, okay. So he did. And then we went out and spoke. But after that, he told me, thank you so much. Why didn't anyone else say something? The point is, is Jesus tries to keep people from embarrassment. Mm -hmm. He does. And we should try to help keep people from embarrassment. Try to help them. Even even those, those little rowdy children that we aren't drawn to, what can we do to help them look better to their peers? Mm -hmm. That's right. All right, now we want to focus a little bit on fathers, okay? On fathers. The first responsibility is to the family, specifically to the father. And this is a quote that says, The world is not so much in need of great minds as of good men who will be a blessing in their homes. Amen? And then she says, One well-ordered, well-disciplined family tells more in behalf of Christianity than all the sermons that can be preached. Such a family gives evidence that the parents have been successful in following God's directions and that the children will serve Him in the church. Their influence grows, for as they impart, they receive to impart again. The father and mother find helpers. And I think that's the key right there, is finding your children are your helpers in the church. They're your helpers in the home. And they're your helpers in life, Uh truly. Who give to others the instructions received in the home. 
So if there's three things, three words that I could say that are the most important advice, being parents and grandparents, it is example, example, example. And I had a very good friend who was my director of nursing when I was just a new nurse. And she was really struggling with her teenager because her teenager was out late with her friends and coming home drunk. And she was beside herself. She had raised her as a Christian and she was drinking. And so we were coming back from a conference and it was late at night and the car was packed with women and she was pouring out her heart about her teenage daughter. And I just felt uncomfortable, but I just felt impressed. I prayed first and I said, Janet, do you and your husband drink? Well, no, she said, we have a glass of wine after dinner. I said, but in your daughter's mind, there's no difference. She said, well, we don't get drunk. I said, I know, but she's a teenager. In her mind, mom and dad drink. I'm going to drink. And she doesn't know when to stop. So your example to her is that you drink. Why can't she drink? She went home, and she and her husband talked about it. And they got rid of the alcohol in their home. And you know what? It wasn't long, but that young woman came around. So may I say to you, we all have been hypocrites at times. God will forgive us. But our example is the best thing we can do to show our children what it looks like to be a Christian. That's the next quote. In fact, the best test of the Christianity of a home is the type of character begotten by its influence. Actions speak louder than the most positive profession of godliness. In other words, you may profess it, but what are the actions? Is it, Son, is it? don't do what I do, just do what I say. Yeah, 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 yeah. That won't fly. All right. Now, here's another one. We must not forget our dear wives. Somebody ought to say amen. amen. All right, all right. In all our responsibilities, the husband and father is the head of the household. The wife looks to him for love and sympathy and for aid in the training of the children, and this is right. So somebody needs to step up to the plate and take the role, be the leader. And you see these movies, these sitcoms, these shows today, that what do they do? They put down fathers. They degrade dads. Yeah. And that is definitely the work of the devil, to try to put down the man. And notice it says that he's to aid his wife. So Mm -hmm. they need to be on the same page. They need Mm -hmm. to have talked about what are the principles that we want lived out in our home and then come together and then follow together. So we need to get a plan. And the plan is that we have devotions. And if the man's not going to lead out, then the mother needs to, you know, step up to the place. Somebody needs to lead out and have devotions in the family. It'd be nice if dad would. Amen. So, you know, we talk about devotions on a daily basis. That's very healthy. Children need to develop their own devotions, too. Spending time with Jesus, that's very important, too, is it not? But also, it's very important that I know I'm a real stickler on this. And I don't know why, but I have always been the one saying, Honey, honey, there's there's 15 minutes before sundown. We have got to... Get ready 
you know, we need to kneel and pray in about 10 minutes, about five minutes before the Sabbath comes. Well, we usually to, we like to do it earlier than we that. We need to usher it in. And I'm the and, one trying to. <laughs> and, and and little Martha here, she is just, you know, cleaning and cleaning. I said, honey, we need to just stop. If it doesn't get done, we need to bring in the Sabbath on time. Amen. That's so important. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. So let the husband aid his wife by his sympathy and unfailing affection. If he wishes to keep her fresh and gladsome so that she will be as the sunshine in the home, let him help her bear her burdens. Mm -hmm. His kindness and loving courtesy will be to her a precious encouragement. And the happiness he imparts will bring joy and peace to his own heart. So in other words, it's kind of like the husband sets the tone. If the husband's not happy and is not, you know, full of joy, then it rubs off on other members of the family. Does it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it says we all want our wives to be the sunshine of the home. We may think that we have a lemon, but was she a lemon when we married her? Most of us probably thought of our wife as a peach when we married her. And God is able to make her a peach again. He can also make you the apple of his eye. So, you know, it kind of starts with us. We kind of set the tone in the home. You know, if daddy comes home and he's had a bad day, you know, the dog bit him and the cat scratched him and he's not, you know, then then mother says, don't say anything to your father. He's had a bad day and the whole, you know, everybody, you know, walking on eggshells, you know. But if daddy's happy and then everybody relaxes, are you with me? All right. All right. So the husband and father who is morose, selfish, and overbearing is not only unhappy himself, but he casts gloom upon the inmates of his home. Now, this is interesting. This was written like a hundred years ago when the word inmate doesn't have the same meaning as it does today. And yet, though Ellen White's time, the word inmate did not have the same connotation as today, the idea of a prison fits well in this passage. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That's amazing. So we kind of set the tone, guys. All right. You have any closing comments, honey? No, I just think that I love that God puts before us sympathy, kindness, gentleness, all of those fruits of the Spirit, and says our homes will be happy if we allow the Holy Spirit to live in us. We don't have those attributes all the time Mm -hmm. unless the Holy Spirit's living in us. And so if we find ourselves to be among this group that has made our homes miserable, we can go to God, Mm -hmm. and He will give us a new heart. You know, and remember, there's homework on both parts here. There's homework with the children. They have homework that they need to do. And mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, we have homework to do. All of us working together. And how did it say that we're raising these children to become co-laborers together? What was the word? Helpers. Thank you. We're all helpers together, making the family the best it can possibly be. And then when we come together as a church family, all of those attributes also make us a happy home here. All right. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the godly counsel that we have in your word. And we just pray that you'll help us to take these principles and use them to the honor and the glory 
of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know you'll help us, Lord. We know that we're all broken. There's not one of us that's not broken. But you love broken people. And you want to help us. And you want to help make us better. And we know that you'll do that by giving us the Holy Spirit. So, Father, make us whole through your presence and through your power. Because we want to be your person. Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Pat Milligan and his wife, Tammy. Pastor Pat is former pastor of Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches and is now ministering in the Oklahoma Conference. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit a Seventh-day Adventist church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.